Hey folks, John Carlin here. I recently served as the number two at the Justice Department. And before I took on that position, I hosted CAFE's Cyberspace Podcast. This week, I'm excited to fill in for Preet and Joyce on the CAFE Insider Podcast. Joining me is Chris Inglis. Chris recently served as the first U.S. National Cyber Director, a position he helped envision and create. In that role, he advised the president on cybersecurity issues and helped the administration develop its first national cybersecurity strategy. Before that, Chris served in many positions throughout government, including as deputy director of the National Security Agency under two presidents. Chris and I discussed the national security implications of artificial intelligence, the lessons learned from recent cyber attacks, and the responsibilities of the National Cyber Director. Today, we're pleased to share an excerpt from that episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. But to hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, just try the membership for $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We'll look forward to having you as part of the insider community. We're on the cusp of trying to regulate a new breakout technology that actually I think you allude to in the cybersecurity, but that's artificial intelligence. And maybe just to take a step back, the White House recently announced it's doing a listening session and wants to put out principles on artificial intelligence. That's very recent. But taking a step back, let me just start with, what do you think the risks and benefits of artificial intelligence are to national security? Does it implicate national security? Yeah, it's a great question. I would observe two things before I answer that question head on. One is it's moving so fast that I'm not sure we yet know what the risks and benefits are or that we will ever be kind of line abreast with, you know, it as it kind of races forward. Most of what thrills or scares us, you know, in generative AI is really the benefit, the product of the last few months, right? Um, if we'd been sitting here a year ago, you know, we would not have had kind of foremost in our mind things like ChatGPT. And so the kind of the slope of the development curve, the innovation curve is turning upward very fast. Were you surprised at how fast? I was surprised. I think a number of people are surprised, but it's not surprising when you take a look at where the investment's being made. I, I saw something last week, I believe this is pretty credible, that there are 30 people kind of developing its further capabilities for every one person that's trying to figure out how to control it or to harness it in a way that preserves safety and kind of the comfort that a human being still is the accountable party. Meaning that we've got a huge bias for innovation and, and a very small kind of investment in, do we understand it? And can we kind of have confidence that it's still under our control? Two, having said that, the rate at which that's emerged we can't come up with some hard and fast rules about today's version of artificial intelligence, or for that matter, hard and fast rules about some technology we've not yet experienced. Maybe quantum computing is going to come out of the kind of the dark and race past us in a similar kind of fast um, pace. We need to think about what the kind of more generic kind of rules might be. How do we impose some sense of responsibility and accountability on those who build and deploy this as opposed to those who simply use this at the end of the supply? chain. How do we make it such that we develop a culture and a responsibility scheme that goes hand in glove with that culture that said that resilience has to be at the table at the start 
and, and resilience, you know, that's a fairly generic word, but so that you kind of have confidence that it will do what you want it to do. And that it won't do those things that you find excessive or, or to your detriment. And how do you maintain human accountability in it? I think those are the underlying principles for AI at the moment. And those will, I think, stand the test of time as this thing races kind of forward, um, kind of in ways that bedazzle us. I do worry that that if we kind of lose contact between this technology and human accountability, we'll find ourselves in a position where we've authorized it to do things um, without a value system that will then surprise us in negative ways. And, and we'll find that not having not attached accountability to a human person, we won't know how to bring it back under control, how to bring it under heel. One of the human accountability questions, you know, is the so-called black box issue with with AI, the idea that, that the algorithms are so complex that there isn't transparency. So you don't actually know how it's working at a certain point. Have you thought about that? Is that something that we can analogize to any other problems that we've encountered? Yeah, I think, look, I don't know how my calculator does what it does. I know when I ask it to kind of like give me, you know, some answer to a complicated piece of math. It does it. It's bounded in terms of what I've authorized it to do for me. I understand in advance what the result will be. I think AI can be the same. You know, if we ask it to like think your way through what COVID-23, COVID-24, COVID-25, 6, 7 looks like, and then devise, right, mechanisms by which we can detect it, arrest it, interdict it, maybe even immunize ourselves against it, it's going to exceed our expectations in all the ways that are positive and all the ways that matter. But if we don't give it some specific purpose and some kind of envelope within which it operates, we just let it free range, you know, without some value system that's implicit in how we perhaps applied it, it will surprise us. And so I think if we were to say cut it loose in the social engine kind of regime where we just let it be generative in terms of massively producing ideas that titillate, that quickly go viral without any particular purpose or sense of what good looks like in terms of the result of the black box, uh, we will be negatively surprised in ways that we will rue the day. Those are perhaps too fuzzy, but I just think we need to think at any moment in time, what do I authorize this thing to do? And, and what sort of surprising result do I want that pleasantly kind of meets my aspirations as opposed to some kind of untoward application of this that I'm going to actually blame myself because I didn't actually have an idea in mind of what I've authorized it to do. We had to something surprising. I haven't seen it too many times in, in my career. I don't know if you have where... One of the key innovators in this space, uh, Sam Altman, who's founded the OpenAI that ChatGPT is based on, went to Congress and said, we need to be regulated. I'm worried. Uh, following up on what he said, he called for a large government agency to regulate large companies in the AI space. He called for regulation around demanding safety pre-rollout. and a liability regime. My worst fears are that we cause significant, we, the field, the technology, the industry, cause significant harm to the world. Uh, I think that could happen in a lot of different ways. It's why we started the company. Um, it's a big part of why I'm here today uh, and why we've been here in the past and, and we've been able to spend some time with you. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. But we, we try to be very clear-eyed 
about what the downside case is and the work that we have to do to mitigate that. So what do you think? So I step back a little bit and say that, you know, that that goes hand in glove with a kind of a set of people standing alongside him who are also quite expert in this that are kind of calling out the dangers of artificial intelligence. And so it's not independent of that, but it's a little bit it's a little bit more than that. Um, and, and that first group that I'm talking about that's calling out the potential dangers, we have precedents for that. When nuclear technology was something that we developed on a rapid kind of rapid schedule in World War II, believing that if we didn't, somebody else would, that may, perhaps might not be the best reason, but ultimately using it, right, in a controversial kind of method to end the war in the Pacific, there were a number of people who immediately after that said, we now need to control it, we need to protect ourselves from it. We're at that moment again, but it's going to be much harder to control this, this technology, than the control of nuclear technology, because the price of admission, once we kind of get these generative models up and running and and widely deployed, it's going to be much lower. You're not going to be able to physically control. You know, that's a relatively, it's funny, nuclear was not where I was expecting you to go because that, that's a relatively, hard to say this about that field, but positive example where there was, early on, there was regulation and creation of norms. I thought actually you were going to talk about the internet where we use the opposite approach and... I think it was really 20 something years in before we started playing catch up with the risks and you know better than anyone. <laughs> I think that was partly animating your cyber strategies. We're still playing catch up with the risks. We are. And, and so that that's the second part where I was going to go, which is that we took the completely opposite approach, you know, not realizing that there might be some downsides to at scope and scale, deploying processing power, analytics, uh, the virality and the titillating nature of the internet perhaps sometimes exceeds its value to us in terms of efficiently helping us coordinate, synchronize, kind of do the things that we want to do. We didn't realize that early on. And now we're trying to figure out how to actually reconcile those, those two kind of outcomes in cyberspace and all that gray space in between. That being said, go to the question you've asked, which is you now have some who are actually on the leading edge of developing innovating in this space. And they're saying, we need some degree of government regulation. We perhaps need some government control. I think there's a three-part play there. Uh, one of those reflects all of that sense, that true and I think bona fide sense of there might be danger here. And we need to make sure that we continue to attach whatever controls or value systems to this that help us kind of guide our way through so, so that we don't find that we got get to a place insidiously or otherwise that we will rue the day that we didn't actually bring kind of safety ideas and the culture of does this thing serve us or do we serve it foremost in mind. Two, I think what some of them are asking for is liability protection that that if they operate kind of in a responsible, diligent manner, that they will be um, held harmless from any harms that they that their products and services inflict on others. That's not unreasonable. And if I'm kind of an innovator in this space, I'd like to kind of say, hey, look, I will try to advance the interest of society. But if this thing kind of through my best efforts still kind of exceeds the box and does something that I hadn't expected, I'd like to be held harmless for that. And three, uh, what some of them are asking for is to essentially freeze the status quo of who's in front and who's not so that we can perhaps constrain those that are just trying to enter into this marketplace, uh, which then by nature freezes the advantage that the leaders in this space have. Um, that's not kind of ennoble, but but we have to think about that too, about whether 
we want to freeze out some further innovation that occurs in some um, various and sundry places that that will serve the needs that we we have for the positive applications of this that a main scale, a large scale provider might not think their way through. So I, I think that there's there's a there there. We should work our way through. How do we actually get our arms around this? We're not going to put it back in the box. And there are those who are going to use it for illicit ennoble purposes. And so we need to make it harder for them to do that. We need to make ourselves resilient if they do that. And we need to make it such that there's a consequence they'll bear if they do that. All of those things, I think, stand into this. This is not a new and novel kind of environment in that regard, even though this technology might itself be new and novel. So I'm hearing a little bit in there, much more eloquently phrased, but that the testimony, although it was received positively, might in some ways be not a bad sense, but exactly fitting with the business interests behind chat and GPT that it might freeze in place uh, their status as a industry leader and shield them ultimately from liability. I noticed this week that after the testimony, when the EU actually proposed certain regulations, that they were not greeted with delight by uh, by Mr. Altman. In fact, he talked about pulling his product from the EU. And now the EU has responded by saying they're not going to respond to to threats. I guess that shows, demonstrates a little bit to your point that it, it's more complex and to get the regulation right. I think that's the point. We, we have to recognize that there are multiple strands, threads, um, kind of, you know, going through the same piece of fabric here. And we have to understand that which of those are we dealing with? If we're simply going to control this technology, kind of just freeze it in place so it does no harm, then I think we'll recognize that that's A, impossible, and B, um, will deny us the opportunity to apply this for very positive, innovative, affirmative purposes. And, and so let's think about, you know, the other dimensions of this and get whatever we do kind of to address those those multiple kind of expectations and strands. It's not going to be simple. So we have the long vision here. Short term, as we head towards the 2024 election, how how concerned are you? I know one of the issues we've tackled together with uh, terrorist threats in particular and the nation states is the use of another new technology where maybe we were late uh, to thinking about all the uses, that uh, the bad uses, which would be social media, many good uses, but the way it could be exploited by terrorists and nation states. We're heading towards 2024. How, how concerned are you about generative AI and its ability to take that misinformation to a whole different level with personalized communications and video? I'm very concerned, but not alone. You know, and I think that there's a large number of people that have seen this for what it is, which is it has the ability to not simply hold data and systems at risk or to advance our ability to make good use of data and systems or to hold critical functions, which kind of depend upon those data systems, right, to make them more efficient, more effective or hold them at risk, but to hold confidence at risk, which, which is that third level of abstraction. You know, I think we increasingly, I think, I hope, see technology not as a means to an end, but rather as the means by which we achieve the things we already care about, whether it's my online banking, whether it's the conduct of an election, whether it's delivery of critical functions like electricity. That's why we have this technology. 
And when we use generative AI, we need to think about it not as a thing in its own right, as titillating as that might be, but how do we apply it to those already kind of on-scene purposes? And I worry that if it, it is unleashed in a way that's inappropriate, we will begin to see a further diminishment of our confidence that this digital infrastructure will serve our purposes the way we expect, where we expect, when we expect. Let's go back to the elections on the even years of 16, 18, 20, 22. To the degree that there was an attempt on part of certain foreign adversaries, Russia specifically, to interfere in our election, uh, my personal judgment, not as the former national cyber director, but my personal judgment was they weren't trying to convert a vote from one column to another or to even get in and perhaps kind of queer the integrity of some um, electoral database. What they're trying to do is to get our society, our kind of our republic writ large, to doubt whether the digital infrastructure upon which we depend was delivering a correct result. It was the doubt. It was the attack on confidence that I think was the main objective. And they used social media brilliantly and any number of other kind of threads that perhaps attacked our sense of what was happening and what and, and what might not be happening in ways that caused our confidence to come into question. But no one has yet found any integrity faults in the data or, or in the tally of votes. I mean, all of that we've proven as integral as it should be. And yet, here we are in this raucous discussion about the campaign of 2020, right? And, and what's that about? That's about whether we have the confidence on top of all that. Generative AI, I think, will careen into that in a way that kind of makes what happened in 2020 and before um, look like child's play. And we just need to make sure we're on top of that. And what's the best inoculation for that? Critical thinking skills some confidence that the underlying kind of data and systems are doing what they're supposed to do. So the controls and the proof of those controls will be really important so that what then runs amok on top of that generative AI comes into being, we're inoculated because we know what the truth of the matter is and we've got some objective evidence that things are what they are. But if you don't prepare those first two things and generative AI essentially takes, takes the steering wheel and we're off to the races. China's moved quite aggressively when it comes to AI development and it's using it to force judicial accountability, to operate its social credit system. Do you think their speed with deploying AI is giving them an advantage over the United States and Western countries? Well, certainly giving them an advantage over what they want to do. So if you compare what their kind of status quo capabilities were 10 years ago and what they're able to do today with respect to their own citizens, they're in a far more effective, more efficient place in terms of providing the surveillance, the social credit scores. I mean, all of that kind of imposition of some autocratic sense of what order and discipline look like. But they've got a different compact with their people than kind of the United States has with its people. We wouldn't, shouldn't, hopefully couldn't do the same thing with AI that they do with their AI. The question is whether those systems then get mixed, whether they begin to apply those same methods to people who are not willing to live under a system of that of that sort. Look, I, I saw a credible study about a week or two ago that had polled over about a four-year period, right, Chinese citizens and said, how satisfied are you with your government and, and what it does for you, with you, by you? And the satisfaction rate was, you know, in the upper 80s, early 90s. A similar study done in the United States showed that it was down in the kind of upper 20s, low 30s. 
So I just think we need to understand that these governments have different relationships with their people and what the Chinese are attempting to do with theirs. I don't condone, but I'm not a Chinese citizen and I can't make the choice for that Chinese citizen. So we have a fundamentally different purpose and we need to make sure that we use it for our purpose. We stick to our guns in terms of what our value system is and we don't let their systems um, impact and, and impose consequences on our citizens and those we're kind of charged to protect in ways that we find inappropriate or beyond the pale. Issues are somewhat linked, but how do you trust a poll about confidence or faith in government in China when, in part, they're using AI in order to surveil responses. Can you poll effectively? I think you can. I, I think you'd have to actually be mindful that if you did this online, um, that, that you know, you'd be perhaps putting the witness in a place where, you know, there's a right answer, there's a wrong answer, you better give the right one. Um, but, but I think there are ways to do the polling where you come to some kind of conclusions that you can take to the bank. That is a general issue in terms of what you do online and how you use your digital methods to achieve those. Uh, but, but I do think that we have to understand that the average Chinese citizen has a different expectation of his or her government than the average American citizen, or for that matter, a liberal democracy kind of citizen with respect to their governments. And that's not to say that we should allow those to mix in a way where we allow Chinese government initiatives to impose their will on either our businesses or our citizens. That's not acceptable. But I think to some extent, we have to understand that they are pursuing a different agenda. And, and we don't want to win in that agenda by essentially imposing the same sort of imposition on our citizens using a technology the way they would use that technology. These are distinct systems. And, and therefore, the race that I care about is how do we actually achieve the aims of a liberal democracy using this technology and make it such that the aims of a system that uses that for different purpose cannot be imposed on us. That's a different game than, than a straight out kind of race, foot race in terms of developing technology for its own sake. It's technology that is actually applied for a particular purpose. We should never forget what that purpose is. If we do, then I think we'll find we wake up one day and, and we live in a world where this technology is something we serve as opposed to the other way around. We've touched on concerns around use of AI for misinformation and surveillance, and you've emphasized the human accountability. Another area that the Red Cross has called out is the use of AI to create autonomous weapon systems, which goes, I think, to your, your fundamental point about people being in charge. But do, do you think that is AI something that should ever be deployed when it comes to weapon system? Or is that an area where to maintain human control, you need to not use this technology? They are not necessarily at cross purposes. You can maintain human control and deploy an AI capability inside of that. So for example, if you kind of Let's take a physical situation where you're talking about the application of combat power, right? Military power. If you're kind of on a battlefield, which has a bedazzling array of kind of objects moving hither and yon, and you don't know which are friendlies and which are hostiles, and, and you need to quickly sort that out because you're about to apply lethal force, 
you probably want something that can quickly kind of take all the attributes that you can see through all the methods that you might see that kind of rapidly do the analytic necessary to say that that's that's a threat that's not this is a friendly this is foe and then give you some ideas and suggestions about which of those you should then interdict using your combat power the quicker you can do that with the best fidelity the more granularity the better you are especially if you don't have overwhelming numerical superiority. And that's the nature of the military we currently have. We don't have numerical superiority. We have the ability to make decisions faster and to bring our resources to bear in a highly synchronized way. We call it joint operations. Analytics that increasingly go beyond simply working fast, heuristics, to where they actually are able to make intelligent choices beyond which a human mind or a set of human minds can make. That's an unalloyed good thing, so long as right we understand what we've authorized it to do and the ultimate accountability for deploying it within whatever the envelope might be, whatever box it might be, is still attached to human being. If a machine or an analytic makes a choice that we then say there must be some consequence, legal or otherwise, for because it was a mistake, you're not going to be able to take that machine to a court of law or to a kind of a uniform court of military justice court. You know, it's going to be a human being somewhere. It might be one that you kind of lost track of along the way. And therefore, there's some regret about what you allowed the machine to do. But there it is. I'll just give another anecdote. I was on a study somewhere in the Defense Department a few years ago, which was called the the Autonomous Weapons Study. I don't know that that was exactly the term of art, but it was pretty close to that. And, and we got about halfway through that when we were briefing that to some, some folks who had not been a part of the study and somebody raised a hand and said, do you actually intend to build autonomous weapons? And I responded um, kind of gamely, yes. Um, you know, there's going to be some degree of autonomy in these systems. They said, if by that you mean that this thing can change sides in the middle of the fight, then I don't think that's what you want. Um, and, and we, <laughs> that seems we like a fair agree. point. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's not what we want. And so he said, so you're not building autonomous weapons. You're building more capable weapons. You're building more, uh, whatever, advanced weapons that can think faster than a human being can. But you have to maintain its connection to the human being. I think that's one of those axioms, one of those foundational precepts we just can't lose sight of. No, that's a great way to frame it. And are you seeing now, so we're talking in some ways about tomorrow problems when it comes to autonomous weapon systems, but on a today problem, are you seeing criminal groups when they commit cyber attacks, hacks, ransomware attacks, are they already employing artificial intelligence? I don't have specific um, and current knowledge about that, but I'd be surprised if they weren't. We've seen, you and I, John, when we were still in harness within the government, saw syndicates rise up um, where there was a distribution of responsibility of who would break into a system. That criminal group would then sell that to somebody that would then explore inside of that kind of potential victim system, who would then sell that to somebody who would then lock it down and kind of you know encrypt it so that the ransomware attack could begin in earnest, who would then sell that to somebody that would negotiate with, with that potential victim, now actual victim, right? That degree of distribution of responsibility between various individuals, people, organizations, it's a natural extension of that to then use tools like artificial intelligence to do some of that work and, and to have cross dependencies between not just now organizations with different strengths, but technologies and people who have different strengths. AI naturally kind of works its way into that. And if it's a tool that's available on the network, which in the last few months it is, 
they're going to use it. I think what we're going to experience is just like everything else, it's going to be insidious. It will be upon us before we know it, right? And unless we think our way in advance of its arrival about what we're going to do to slow it down or to detect it or to interdict it or to make ourselves safe from it, um, we'll kind of find ourselves about a mile behind it. You're all, you've already jumped back into some of your former roles, sitting on the, the board of a financial institution, sitting on the or giving strategic advice to a company making investments in this space. What guidance should companies be giving to their employees right now on when, how, to what extent they should be using AI? As in any other tool that the company might bring to bear, we need to understand what our expectations are of it, why we would employ it, um, what, what the ultimate purpose Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. And to the many of you who have chosen to join our insider community, thanks for supporting our work. 